it's a privilege to take part in this service tonight as we set apart for gospel ministry Marcus Smith. But as we do so, we are continuing in our series on the fruit of the Spirit. So you can turn at this time, if you'd like, to Galatians 5. We will be turning to Galatians 5, and I will touch upon Galatians 5. But as we look at peace tonight, I will be looking at several other texts as well. So it will be good to keep your Bibles handy. Before we get going, though, let's pray once again. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that as our hearts are stayed upon you, we can know rest. And I pray tonight that you would soften our hearts that we might be able to rest in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of peace, perfectly at peace with one another, and who has made peace with us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross. We now pray in his name. Amen. Well, when historians write about the year 2020, I don't think they are going to use peace as a way to describe Our year. So far, we've had an impeachment trial for the president. We've had and still have a global pandemic. And we most recently have had deaths at the hands of police, leading to protests and rioting over concerns of racism. What's more, we're looking down, and it's only July, (laughs) we're looking down the long barrel of a presidential election that might prove to be one of the more divisive ones in recent memory. No, it doesn't seem like we are surrounded by a lot of peace in America in 2020. Yet the political, social, and scientific spheres of America are not all that exist. Today, gathered here, together with billions across the globe, are Christians who have been united with Christ by the Spirit. We are at peace with God, or better, God is at peace with us. And we are at peace with one another. Maybe not always, but objectively, in Christ, we are. So we strive for peace, and one day, we will forever be at peace. So don't let 2020 get you down. Though it might not be in the headlines or on your Facebook page, Peace is here. Tonight, we take up the third of the fruit of the Spirit in our series. We've looked at love. We looked at joy. Tonight, peace. As Bruce uh, said last week, these three, these first three of the fruit of the Spirit, have a strong vertical dimension. But there is also a horizontal dimension to understanding Peace, like these crosses across the exterior and interior of our building, there is a vertical and a horizontal beam in understanding the peace that the Spirit brings. And as we consider peace tonight, we will do so through three points. The source of peace, the road to peace, and the practice of peace. The source of peace, the road to peace And the practice of peace. According to Galatians 5.22, the source of peace seems obvious. These are the fruit of the Spirit after all. 
And as Paul instructs the church about them, he teaches what they are in part by way of contrast. The fruit of the Spirit are preceded by a number of negative things that are fruits or are uh, works of the flesh. Things that those who are led by the Spirit are called to avoid, to turn from. And in verses 19 to 22, we find what is opposed to peace. In that long list, you have enmity, strife, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. And after this list, Paul gives the positive fruit of the Spirit and what the Spirit produces and what Christians are to pursue. And the third of these is peace. So on the one hand, you have this treacherous list of sins sourced in our fallen nature. And then on the other hand, this beautiful tapestry of virtues sourced in the Holy Spirit. But listen to what Paul says as he goes on in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And those who belong to Christ Jesus. There's something with what the Spirit is doing negatively in crucifying the works of the flesh and positively in bearing fruit in our lives that has everything to do with Jesus Christ. So it's not quite as simple as saying the Spirit, the Spirit alone is the source of our peace. For the Spirit works together with Jesus Christ. Indeed, it is as the Spirit causes us to belong to Christ Jesus that we have the fruit of peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, the Christ who is to come is called the Prince of Peace. Later in Isaiah and Ezekiel, we learn Christ stands at the center of a covenant which is called a covenant of peace. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And later in that same upper room discourse in John 16, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In Ephesians 2, Christ calls himself our peace. In 2 Thessalonians, Christ is called the Lord of peace. Additionally, 11 different times in the New Testament, we have that wonderful, familiar greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture appears to be very concerned to equate peace with Jesus Christ. It is who he is It is also what he brings. It is who he is. It is also what he brings. How is that so? How can Jesus be peace and bring peace? In John 16, Jesus says that his followers will face turmoil in this world. And he sets the turmoil that goes on in this world over and against the peace that exists between him and the Father. Even when sin pulls his disciples from his side and as he goes progressively to the cross, it seems like sin is taking more and more of his disciples from his side. The father is always present with his son, 
Jesus Christ. Indeed, Jesus says in verse 33 of John 16, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. His peace, Jesus' peace, was a shared peace with the Father and with the Spirit, his constant companion. Part of Jesus' faithful obedience was living in that peace as a bulwark and not following the false peace offered by this world, whether it's a a false peace of political might, a false peace of tribalism, a false peace of inclusivism, which doesn't require any repentance, or a false peace of libertinism, which says live and let live. Opposed to all these, Jesus always lived in light of the perfect unity and loving presence of the Father and with the Spirit. This is his peaceful reality. This is the life of the Trinity, which unlike the warring pagan gods of Greek and Rome, and unlike the warring idols of our age, it is one of eternal peace, no enmity, no rivalry, no dissension, no division. So we read Galatians 5 and think the Spirit might be the source of the fruit of peace. But that leads us to consider Christ because the Spirit causes us to belong to Jesus Christ and Jesus as the incarnate Son of God is peace. But then as Jesus talks about peace, he talks about it in terms of his communion with the Father. So it is a Trinitarian peace. And Jesus stresses in John 14 that this Trinitarian peace is available to his disciples through him. In the context of speaking of the coming Holy Spirit, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus stresses that this godly Trinitarian peace that he enjoys with the Father and the Spirit is the same peace that is available to his followers. A peace he knows that we will need as we face the tribulation and the division that this world and all its potential fears bring. So Jesus himself offers to us his own peace. But how does he bring it? How does the man of peace bring peace? That is to ask, what is the road to peace in scripture? Which is our second point. If you think of the pictures of peace in the Bible, you probably start with the Garden of Eden. Right There you have Adam and Eve at peace with one another, at peace with creation, and at peace with God. And we, when we want to create a peaceful, tranquil environment and say a nursery, we put up paintings and murals, right, of the garden. But the peace of the garden didn't last. It only lasts two chapters in the whole Bible. As we learn in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's sin brought division and enmity into their relationship, into their relationship with creation, and most of all, in their relationship with God himself. If the tribulation of the fall in Genesis 3 was not clear enough, 
In the very next chapter, the picture becomes crystal. When we have the first murder, when Cain kills his brother, Abel. The garden and the aftermath of the fall teach us two very important truths. Number one, God created the world at peace. The original state of humanity in this world and with God was one of peace. But sin ruptured this peace and it is responsible for the enmity and division that we experience in this world. And what this means is that this side of the garden and fall, lasting peace will only come through conflict or separation. East of Eden, after the fall, the road to eternal peace will only travel through conflict and separation. What do I mean? Turn with me to Genesis 3.15. Some of you can turn in your memories. It's a famous passage. But turn to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3, again, is the unfolding of the awful aftermath of the fall. And in the midst of this awful passage where God is detailing the woes of the fall, there's one glimmer of hope. One glimmer of hope. It's in verse 15, God turns to the serpent who tempted Eve and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first word of grace, which foretells of one to come who will put the serpent and all he represents, sin And death underfoot. In other words, God will deal with the enmity brought by sin and the serpent, but will do so through conflict, through crushing of a head. Now, following this road through the rest of Scripture is a a great drama. It first involves Abraham and Moses and David. Through them, God establishes a people with whom he makes covenantal peace that's the israelites and he sets on them on a course to live in peace in the midst of the promised land which was his gracious gift to his people but before they can be established in peace they must make conflict with the inhabitants of canaan and separate their lives from the canaanites and when they don't they get drawn back into Conflict which ultimately leads to their exile. However, because God remains tenaciously committed to his promise in Genesis 3.15, that's not the end of the story. For it leads to this prince of peace, as Isaiah calls him. It leads to Jesus Christ who brings an ultimate and a lasting peace through conflict. Turn with me to Ephesians now, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I'm going to read half of this long, beautiful passage now and the other half later, so you can keep your Bibles open here to Ephesians 2. But Ephesians 2, starting with verse 11. And listen to how Jesus brings peace. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the true so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This passage is addressed to those who are at once not at peace with God, those outside the covenants of promise. And what Paul says, though, is that those who were separated, alienated, strangers, far off, have been brought near. How? How have they been brought near? Through the blood, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the great conflict of the cross. He has torn his flesh so that which is torn between us and God and one another might be made whole again. He has faced the enmity our sins deserve that we might know his peace. Through the cross, the Prince of Peace has established peace, we could say, in the foundation documents of his kingdom where peace is a state of reconciliation and love and therefore acts as this bond to unite believers in Christ now you see that is with God that is with God Paul says here that we might be reconciled to God thereby killing the hostility that is remarkable because it is saying God is not neutral God is not neutral to us outside of Christ. No, there's this hostility there because of sin. A hostility that reaches all the way back to Genesis, but is dealt with by Christ as he takes on the hostility of our sins on the cross and defeats them in order that we might know God's peace. Lasting peace is only known This side of the garden in the fall through conflict. But it is a conflict that our captain of salvation, Jesus Christ, engaged in on our behalf so that he becomes the great preacher of peace and he establishes a house of peace. Now listen to the rest of Ephesians 2 where we left off. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by Spirit. So through the conflict of the cross, Christ brings about peace. Indeed, as Paul says here, he is our peace. In himself, in himself, he brings the peace of the Trinity into communion with his children who cling to him by faith. But, and this is key, this peace does not exist in silos through some shafts of enlightenment to those that God establishes with peace as individuals. Just as sin was first vertical, 
against God, but immediately was horizontal. So through the conflict of the cross, God mends the tear with his people and among his people. In the church, he establishes a household where peace is to reign. Or we could say peace is to be the the control. In Colossians 3.15, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. This verb here in Colossians 3.15, rule, in this verse, it has a very interesting background. It comes from a sporting environment where an umpire decides which results in an order and control in the game. In other words, peace should act as a control of our life together as Christians. That's why we say peace be with you, peace be with us. A good ruler, of course, orders a body of people such that he controls them in a positive direction. A control room of a ship is where instruments are used to keep the vessel moving towards its destination while avoiding catastrophe. Paul is saying here, the peace of Christ should so order, should so control our life together that we are controlled, we are mastered by it. Peace with God through the cross controls our relationship with him. Peace with each other through Christ should control our thoughts and our actions within the body of Christ, within the church. It should be the deciding factor in our relations each with the other. We come, do we not, into the church, a bruised lot, beaten, beaten and divided by the uproar and tumult of this world, sometimes beaten and and divided by the uproar and tumult of those within the church. We look at the world right now and we find so many voices willing to say what can bring resolution to our woes? What can bring peace to our warring factions? But the answers seem to only bring more division, more hurt, more enmity. And that's not to say there can't be good political and cultural leadership that can produce a relative peace for a time. But where do we look? as Christians, as those who comprise the church for our peace, for our lasting peace, we must look to Christ. We must own our sins that have themselves had a role in producing division and enmity and repent from them and turn to the man of peace, Jesus Christ. And yes, this repentance might involve complex work and difficult conversations. But we must always remember that he, Jesus, is our peace. Not only with God through the cross, but also with one another in the church. Our eyes and our attention must never waver from him. For he is the man born of heaven... He has come from the eternal land of peace to, by grace, bring a godly peace to us and among us. We work for peace. We pray for peace until it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And as the Prince of Peace returns and consummates his kingdom, he will bring us into the new heavens and the new earth, which are beautifully depicted for us in Revelation 22, as a place where perfect peace will be found as the Trinity dwells with 
his people. And that picture recaptures and it expands upon what we found originally in the garden. Because it won't be just two people, Adam and Eve. It will include those from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Those things which can so so quickly divide us in this world outside of Christ will be one and will be at peace in him. There in that happy land, we will be fully at peace with God and with one another. And there and then, we will no longer have to worry about any disturbance of peace because all the forces that bring division, all the forces that bring about enmity and war will have been dealt with. So we learned just a few chapters early in Revelation, they will be thrown into the lake of fire, the devil, death, and all those who will not bow to the prince of peace will be eternally separated from the place of peace, the new heavens and the new earth where God dwells at peace with his people. This side of the garden, eternal peace is only known and established through conflict and division. And thanks be to God that in Christ he took on that conflict that we might know peace. And thanks be to God that he separates every threat to peace from his people at the end of the age forever and ever. So what now? We have seen the source of peace in the triune God himself. We have gone down the road of peace leading from the garden through the fall, through Israel, leading all the way to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, who established peace on the cross. We live on the other side of the cross, yet we still await this eternal peace of the new heavens and the new earth. How do we live in light of the reality of the cross? How do we live in light of where we're going in our eternal residence? How do we practice peace? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now here I want to direct my comments primarily to Marcus. Marcus Smith, of no relation that we know, but a fine name indeed. So to Marcus... um, who's being set apart here for gospel ministry this evening. Even so, I I think we all can glean from these applications of peace. Marcus, as you are entering ordained ministry, you must remember that you're doing so as a Christian with all the normal discipleship needs of any other Christian. And that means as we're considering peace as a fruit of the Spirit, you, like all of us, must pursue the God of peace. What comforted Jesus as he faced division and enmity in this world was the peace of the Father and the Spirit with whom he daily walked. He regularly stole away from the conflict of ministry in order to commune with his Father, merely to spend time with him and to talk. And you, I, we all must do the same. We will only carry with us the aroma of peace if we have spent time in worship and prayer with the triune God of peace. The God who has made peace with us through the cross and who extends peace daily to us in communion with him. Yet Marcus, beyond this, you have received a unique call as a preacher and leader of peace in God's church. And in Ephesians 2, we learn that Jesus came as a preacher of peace and he is head over a kingdom of peace. And as an under shepherd, 
You are to be the same, a preacher and a leader of peace. Now you hear that and it is tempting to think, okay, I guess I'm going to give soft, precious moments, sermons that never offend and lead in a way where everyone is ensured to get what he or she wants. But that's not the road at all. As we have seen, the road to godly peace can involve conflict and separation. Interestingly, I think you've been uniquely equipped in your military career to recognize this insight. Our physical peace at times must be established through conflict or protected through conflict. Indeed, Marcus, your name will forever be established in RTS lore for the moment that you protected the peace of the seminary by confronting someone who physically challenged that peace. For those who don't know, one quiet and ordinary day of studiousness at RTS, Marcus, in God's kind providence, was manning the front desk of the seminary. And a certain fellow showed up, brandishing a weapon who sought harm. And Marcus stood in his way and communicated very clearly to him that things would not go well with him if he carried out his intentions. Marcus did not lie down, but he rose to the challenge and the perpetrator fled and the seminary peace went on. And whether you realize it or not, this episode in courage and leadership was a good preparation for ministering peace in God's kingdom. In Ezekiel 3, when God is preparing his prophet for ministry after having him symbolically swallow the scroll of the world, gives him a hard face and a hard forehead to meet the hard hearts of God's people. What this tells the prophet is his ministry will involve conflict. And your ministry, Marcus, will involve conflict. Now, we must be careful here. I don't mean, of course, physical conflict or the conflict only Christ can accomplish once and for all on the cross. Yet he leads in a spiritual conflict. He leads us in a spiritual conflict and he gifts us weapons of spiritual warfare. And so long as sin is in the world and the human heart possesses elements at war with God, there will be conflict in the ministry of the word because you must call men and women, to forsake themselves and their pride and their false righteousness at the cross. To get to the peace of the triune God, you must pass through the conflict of the cross. And just as Jesus and the apostles faced opposition when they preached the good news of the kingdom, so will you. But listen to Jesus. I have said these things to you That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus says in so many words. Keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. I have overcome the world. Don't buy into the cheap knockoffs of peace. That flow like a torrent from our political and social classes. Their sights are short, their aims too low. In your preaching and in your teaching, set your sights on Jesus and aim for eternity. What about leadership? This will be brief. You have much more training in leadership than even I have. But I do need to remind you that we are Presbyterians. 
Which means for better or worse, we must always work with people. Committees, sessions, staffs, and at Presbytery. Presbyterianism is the slow grind of working with people. In each context, I encourage you to pursue the peace and purity of the church. That peace might often only come, though, through your willingness to engage in conflict. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. This doesn't mean you go around looking for conflict. We have too many people that enjoy that. This also doesn't mean being a cantankerous jerk when engaging in conflict. The ways of Twitter and cable news are not the ways of the church. But it does mean being willing to so love and pursue the peace of the church that if something stands in the way of that peace, it is addressed through the principles and standards of the gospel and of the word of God. Too many men think ecclesiastical peace is the absence of conflict when in fact a faux peace might mask deeper issues that are just waiting to erupt onto the surface. And so Marcus is a chaplain, is a potential future pastor, is a presbyter, do the hard work of listening, spending time with people, considering their opinions, even challenging their opinions, having hard conversations, because the peace on the other side of those is much richer and longer lasting. Love, joy, and tonight, peace. We've looked at the source of peace in our triune God. We've looked at the path of peace leading from the garden to the cross. And finally, the practice of peace. There's much enmity, strife, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions in our world today. We can all be tempted to be drawn into them. And we can be fearful of them living in such times as we do. But we serve and we are united to the one who has overcome the world and offers to us, his sons and daughters, peace. A peace that strikes the fear out of our hearts. May his spirit bring abundant peace into your lives, into Christ's covenant church, and into your ministry, Marcus Smith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great covenant you established in eternity to establish peace with us, your people, through Christ, the mediator, our head, our prince of peace. And we thank you that in time you applied that covenant to us by taking us to Christ by the Spirit. We thank you that united with him through the cross, you are at peace with us and we are at peace with you. And we thank you that not only do we know that now in the midst of so much tumult that surrounds us, but that is our eternal existence. That is what will be for all that holds out before us in the new heavens and the new earth. What joy that brings to our hearts that strikes out the fear that the enmity and the division of this world so often brings into our hearts. And we thank you tonight for Marcus. We thank you for another soldier in your kingdom, another herald, another minister and preacher of peace. And we pray your mighty blessing on him. And now as we transition into the service of ordination, may this be foundational for him in his ministry of peace. First in the chaplaincy, in our military, and wherever you may take him after that. We thank you for him. We pray your mighty blessing upon him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.